Hey there, podcast listener. Steven here from the podcast you're currently listening to. You ever heard a podcast and think, I can do that? Well, maybe you can, or maybe you can't, or maybe I can help you get started with it. Hosting is the most expensive cost you'll have in a podcast, and that's why Anchor by Spotify is the easiest way to make a podcast. Really, they have everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. With Anchor's hosting, you can distribute your podcast to other listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a whole lot more. And if you think you can do a better job than I, record a podcast right now. There's very low risk involved. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. to the Lazy Geeks, a weekly podcast that brings you news stories of the past week that may have slipped your radar, why it's important, and without all that clickbait clutter. I'm your host, Stephen Vargas. So I want to take a moment to welcome all of you back to the Lazy Geeks podcast. Back in March, we ended the show in a, its previous form because we felt we needed to be changed. You know, we need a change. After 10 years, you you kind of need to change things up. However, after the show ended, the Lazy Geeks just felt really weird that our branding would continue without our actual brand, if you know what I mean. So Adam was ready to move on, and I thought it, I could tweak the show into a single host show, but showcase some of the content on the blog. I mean, it didn't have to come back in an, as its 90-minute or two-hour show, but it would be good to maintain the brand, even with our other content. So here we are. As far as the numbering scheme goes, and I know a lot of you comic book fans get annoyed with this shit, but we're sticking with the same numbering scheme. This is ep- will be episode 401, season 12. So there was a lot of work to build up 400 episodes, so no sense chucking it, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So all our previous content will remain up, and you're welcome. Now, speaking of our other shows... Because we aren't above plugging ourselves. This makes this a total of four on the Lazy Geeks Podcast Network. So we have this show. Yeah, yeah. It makes four episodes, four shows on the Lazy Geeks Network. So we have this show. Adam and I host two other shows, the Truly Pointless Podcast and the Away Team. The Truly Pointless Podcast is a wide open podcast that has us talking about anything and everything. It's kind of a stream of consciousness podcast. Uh, The Away Team is our Star Trek-centric podcast. We discuss each episode in canonical order. We begin with Star Trek First Contact and jump right into the first season of Enterprise. So in the last year, we're halfway through season two and also included season three of Discovery. 
So you have that. I also have my own personal show, The Fine Line. Now, it takes issues that are in the media and gives it some historical context because you can't expect anyone in the media, left or right, or even in the middle, to give you context about anything. Because if they did, their argument wouldn't hold up. So all these shows are available where you get this one. Now, that brings us to our two new shows that will debut in July. That will make it six. A movie and gaming podcast, respectively, will be joined in the network. The Gaming Graveyard will have both Adam and I playing older video games and reviewing them. Give some history and see if they still hold up. And also there is Due by Noon, a film podcast where we discuss random movies we decide to quote-unquote rent. Both both of those shows will be fun. Looking forward to them and uh, those shows will be on a bi-weekly release schedule. So we'll have more information in June before their launch. Now that we got all that housekeeping out of the way, let's get on with the headlines. Everyone knows that Sony is a bit of a Grinch when it comes to crossplay. Sony used to say it had to deal with safety. When Microsoft and Nintendo d- decided to allow crossplay, Sony threw some shade saying they didn't because they love children. Now, during the Epic Games and Apple court case, we learned that Sony didn't want to do it because of cash. They felt that they would need some compensation due to loss of revenue. Now, for months, Epic was trying to convince Sony that it was a win-win situation for both of them. An email of their pitch was revealed during the court case. So, this is the email. We love working with PlayStation, and we want this to be a win-win. The longer it drags out, it will be less so. I can't think of a scenario where Epic doesn't get what they want. The possibility went out the door when Fortnite became the biggest game on PlayStation. So here is what I propose. One, we give you the data you're asking for plus the marketing data ask. Two, Epic deeply integrates Sony's eSports API into Unreal Engine 4 as the engine level feature. We market and advertise it as the first class citizen of the engine, maybe E3 announcement question mark. And we support it in Fortnite. Three, we announce crossplay in conjunction with Sony. Epic goes out of its way to make Sony look like heroes. You get to pick the when, where, and how. Four, Epic brands its E3 presence with PlayStation. We're planning a 100-player celebrity program with a huge after-party. Budgets I've seen are huge, and it will be bigger. It'll be the biggest event at E3. Maybe we announce with all the celebs on stage? Question mark. New partnership. Epic's will five. Epic's willing to explore more items. Maybe we commit to game at launch for your next VR platform? Question mark. Six. PlayStation Plus. Maybe we do something extra for a month? Question mark. Offer a unique character or something highly valuable to drive PS Plus adoption even more. Seven. Epic extends the Sony company-wide. Uh, Unreal Engine 4 license. I don't think I've mentioned this before, but your license to use Unreal Engine 4 expires in May 2019. And that license has something some of the best terms we've ever offered for Unreal Engine 4. So let's make this a huge win for us all. Epic's not changing his mind on the issue. So let's agree on it now. Joe Creener, Business Development, Unreal Engine, America's Epic Games. So Sony wasn't about that life. 
Giacorsi, Sony's senior director of development relations at the time, dismissed the idea of crossplay, noting that, quote, crossplay platform play is not a slam dunk no matter the size of the title. That was a clear reference to Epic's flex about Fortnite's dominance on PlayStation. As you know, many companies are exploring this idea, and not a single one can explain how cross how cross console play improves the PlayStation business, said Corsi. Now, Sony overplayed their hand because they were able to hold off Minecraft and Fort and um Minecraft and Rocket League. But even when Sony revealed to Epic their idea of a compensation structure, Epic was like, calm the fuck down. Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney confirmed in testimony this week that Sony is the only platform holder to, that requires such compensation for crossplay. In certain circumstances, Epic will have to pay additional revenue to Sony, said Sweeney. If someone w- were primarily playing on PlayStation but, play- but paying on iPhone, then this might trigger compensation. Sweeney also revealed that Epic had to agree to pay these additional fees to Sony in order to enable crossplay for in Fortnite. Now, in the end, Sony thought they had the upper hand until the revolt over the blocking of Fortnite forced them to back down in 2018. Obviously, Sony's short-sighted view of loss of revenue is old-school thought. At this point, no one is on the fence about what consoles they want. They're either in the PlayStation, Xbox, or Switch camp, even mobile. But Sony's attitude to cross-platform is an old mindset of the days before the internet. If Sony required a PlayStation Plus account to for, to cross-play, people would be happy. Sony would see the, their loyalty base, their, their base be more loyal. Why? Because everyone would see them as the supporter of gamers. Let's just, uh, let, they, Sony just announced that they sold more PlayStation 5s than they did PlayStation 4s in the same time period. I think they can get off the whole lost revenue bullshit. You may remember back in in the early days of the Trump administration, he was working to rid the country of net neutrality. During the national discussion, then FCC chairman Ajit Pai wanted people to comment on their state on their site whether they supported or opposed net neutrality. As anyone who knows the internet, you don't ask the internet's opinion on anything. As the New York Attorney General announced last week, a majority of the 22 million comments were fake. New York State Attorney General Latita James found that nearly 18 million of the 22 million comments were fake. It just—it wasn't just one side either. It included both pro and anti-net neutrality. One 19-year-old submitted 7.7 million pro-net neutrality comments under fake, randomly generated names. But the astroturfing effort funded by the broadband industry stood out because it used real name, real people's names without their consent, with third-party firms hired by the industry faking consent records, the report says. The investigation started in 2017, revealed in the final report that the FCC stonewalled any request for evidence. But after a years-long process, it obtained an analyzing, it obtaining of obtaining and analyzing, excuse me, tens of thousands of internet email, internal emails, planning documents, bank records, invoices, and data comprising hundreds of millions of records. The New York AG said it quote found that millions of fake comments were submitted through a secret campaign funded by the country's largest broadband companies 
to manufacture support for the repeal of the existing net neutrality rules using lead generators. The broadband industry could not, in fact, rely on grassroots support for its campaign because the public overwhelmingly supported robust net neutrality rules, the report noted. So the broadband industry tried to manufacture support for repealing by hiring companies to generate comments for a fee. Now, it's important to note that everyone knew that this was fake. Ajit Pai was always going to repeal net neutrality because he was a lobbyist for the telecom industry. His last major employer was Verizon. The fact that not only 4 million comments were legit is about the same as when you discover how many comments on your YouTube videos or Twitter tweets were bots. Unfortunately, we had to wait for a new administration to get any of this. Now, it's been a week since Roku had removed YouTube TV from their service. However, if you have the app downloaded or are using the app, there's no change yet. As heat in the exchange amps up, six months after the release of the PlayStation 5, YouTube TV has finally come to that ecosystem. Now, to be fair, it has always been available for the PlayStation 4 since Sony decided they weren't going to continue with the whole PlayStation View thing. But it arrived and not a bit too soon. Now, in related news, YouTube is sticking it to Roku. They've updated the Roku app, which will be filtered out to other streaming devices soon, which allows you to access YouTube TV within the basic YouTube app. Obviously, this is a move by Google to make Roku look like the total bad guy by seeing if they pull the main YouTube app. But Roku sees what they're trying to do. Google's actions are the clear conduct of an unchecked monopolist bent on crushing fair competition and harming consumer choice. The bundling announcement by YouTube highlights the kind of predatory business practices used by Google that Congress, Attorney Generals, and it should be Attorneys General, and regulatory bodies around the world are investigating. Roku has not asked for one additional dollar in financial value from YouTube TV. We have simply asked Google to stop their anti-competitive behavior of manipulating users' search results to their unique financial benefit and to stop demanding access to sensitive data that no other partner on our platform receives today. In response, Google has continued to practice its practice of blatantly leveraging its YouTube monopoly to force an independent company into an agreement that it is both bad for consumers and bad for fair competition. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Remember, they were they were in a war with Amazon for over a year, which even pulled the basic YouTube app. Their current contract with Roku for the YouTube app expires in December. So if that do, it doesn't get any better by then, I see dark times for Roku users in 2022. Now, Google is pointing out how passwords alone aren't enough to secure your account and data. Most people know that. The company's placing a bigger emphasis on two-factor authentication by activating it on Google accounts by default. And people who have set up two-factor authentication will be asked to confirm the right person is signing in by tapping a prompt on their phone. The company says it will soon start switching to two-factor authentication for everyone automatically as long as their account Google accounts are set up in the right way. You can check whether that's the case if you... Um, for you through the Google account security checkup. You'll have to the option to opt out. 
This is the expansion of the authentication feature Google has had for a while. It might ask you to confirm your identity on the Andro um, with an Android prompt or through the Smart Lock, Gmail, or Google app on, I on iPhone as long as you have signed into the same account. Tapping a prompt is certainly easier than having to punch in a code, and Google says it's more secure than some other two-factor authentication methods. Passwords aren't entirely a thing of the past, though. In, a, in the blog post announcing the two-factor authentication change, Google noted that it has a secure password manager in Chrome, Android, and iOS that you can autofill your login details on sites and apps. Now, I probably would not recommend Google's password manager. I would recommend something like Bitwarden as long as it's as it's more secure and free to use across all devices. One other key um, caveat to this, if you do sign up for um, two-factor authentication, if you do use a third-party app to pull up email like Thunderbird or Outlook or something like that, that you will not be able to do that. Um, that won't, you won't it because it's just not designed to um, go through. So you will have to opt out if you're using another email aggregate to pull all your emails together. So that's just something to keep in mind. And with that, we'll be right back. So this week's main topic, people have been waiting for with bated breath as to whether Donald Trump would have his account terminated or reinstated on Facebook. My butt was on being reinstated. Well, it turned out to be neither. The oversight board, who knows that they're only there for optics, kicked the can down the road for another six months, stating that they can't make a decision Facebook needs to. Essentially, Facebook fucked this whole thing up, and they're the only ones that can sort it all out. Now, Facebook's decision to leave it up to the oversight board is an attempt to have it both ways. If the oversight board made a decision either way... Facebook could point any blowback at the board. Uh, they are the ones that made the decision. We had nothing to do with it. Smack their hands clean. That's it. Problem is, the oversight board saw right through that. Facebook obviously naturally disagreed. Quote, We are trying to hold the decision that Facebook takes as a private company to the fullest possible account and make it transparent and accountable to an independent body. Nick Clegg said it following the board's decision. Now, one of the most notable issues raised by the oversight board in its 12,000 word decision is that Facebook isn't particularly good at consistently enforcing its own policies, especially when it comes to politicians and other influential figures. Now, during a call with reporters, both oversight board co-chairs, Michael McConnell and Helen Helly, sorry, Helly Thorning-Schmidt repeatedly criticized Facebook's ability to apply its own rules in a way that makes sense. The oversight board is telling Facebook that they can't just invent new unwritten rules when it suits them, Thorning-Schmidt said. McConnell said that Trump's suspension was merely one example of Facebook's ad hocery, noting that the board has received more than 20,000 appeals from users, many of whom don't understand the social network's policy policies or reasoning for taking action against their accounts. Now, merely pointing out the holes in Facebook's policy only goes so far, though. The company has, for years and often credibly, been accused of making up their own rules to accommodate Trump to, or avoid a politically perilous decision. That the oversight board is now echoing some of those same criticisms changes little. But 
the board does have the ability to influence Facebook's rules, including how it treats Trump. Besides the binary take down or leave up decisions, the group also makes policy recommendations alongside each case. Unlike the specific content moderation issues, Facebook isn't required to do what the board says, but it's required to respond and provide an explanation. It's these recommendations where the oversight board hopes to prompt meaningful change in the case of Trump's suspensions. It made several recommendations. Among them, Facebook should, quote, publicly explain the rules that it uses when it imposes account-level sanctions against influential users. When Facebook implements special procedures that, that apply to influential users, they should be well-documented. Facebook should explain in its community standards and guidelines its strikes and penalties process for restricting profiles, pages, groups, and accounts on Facebook and Instagram in a clear, comprehensive, and accessible manner. Facebook must resist pressure from governments to silence their political opposition. In evaluating political speech from high-influential influ users, Facebook should rapidly escalate the, con the context or content moderation process to specialized staff who are familiar with the linguistics and political context and, insulate, and insulated from political and economic interference and undue influence. When posts by influential users pose a high probability of imminent harm as assessed under international human rights standards, Facebook should take action to enforce its rules quickly. Facebook should undertake a comprehensive review of its potential contrib contribution to the narrative of the electoral fraud and the exacerbated tensions that culminated in the violence in the United States on January 6, 2021. This should be an open reflection on the design and policy choices that Facebook has made that may enable its platform to be abused. But Facebook has already indicated that it's unwilling to fully cooperate. In its decision, the board says that the company failed to answer several crucial questions, including several that speak to the very issues it raises in the policy recommendations. For example, the board states that Facebook wouldn't answer key questions about how newsfeed or other Facebook features may have amplified Trump's post or whether the company intends to research, quote, those design decisions in relation to the events of January 6, 2021, end quote. Those questions speak to some of the most inf uh, fundamental issues surrounding Trump's suspension, including Facebook's role in failing to prevent the Stop the Steal movement. Likewise, the board said Facebook also declined to answer questions relating to its treatment of other politicians and whether it had been, quote, contacted by political office holders or their staff about the suspension of Mr. Trump's accounts. End quote, or whether this, the suspension affected political advertising. According to the board, Facebook said some of these requests were not as reasonably required under the rules of the govern rules that govern the oversight board. That all that again raises questions about how much influence Facebook is willing to let the oversight board have. The company's treatment for elected officials, its rules for political ads, and the consequences of its algorithms are some of the most consequential issues it's currently grappling with. If Facebook was unwilling to even answer questions about these topics, it seems unlikely they, they would fully embrace all the oversight board's policy changes. 
Moreover, Facebook already has a mixed track record in responding to policy suggestions from the board. So far, the company has only issued one set of responses to the board. And while it said it was, quote, committed to action, end quote, in several areas, it made very few concrete changes. If it's again declines to uh, commit to specific changes in this case, then it will be further proof that the oversight board's biggest critics are right. You, it can't regulate Facebook after all. And now, to close out our show, we have our douchebag of the week. So, a Twitter account reportedly created by the staff of former President Donald Trump was suspended a day after its creation. The account at DJT Desk was believed to have been established to post statements from Mr. Trump and broadcast updates on his new website from the desk of Donald Trump. Trump's new online project debuted earlier in the week and permits fans to share Trump's communications on their own personal social media accounts on Twitter and Facebook, sites that Trump is not permitted on. According to reports, the account at DJT Desk was removed on Wednesday for violating Twitter rules. Journalist Andrew Solander shared the update on Twitter, writing, A Twitter account made to tweet the statements Trump puts out through his super PAC at DJT Desk has been suspended after about a day. Mr. Trump was an active user, user of Twitter, boasting 88 million followers before being removed for his involvement in the insurrection on January 6th. It's believed that the new Twitter account was made to get around this, and it was a useful method for quick communication with his supporters. It should be also noted that he tried to use his daughter-in-law's Facebook account to post stuff on there, and Facebook said, no, 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 can't do that. So... And obviously, which is funny because a couple of months ago, Trump said that he was doing his own social media network. He's going to do his own social media network to take on Twitter and Facebook. Well, the My Pillow guy attempted that, and it's, I think, going okay. But Trump's social media was a blog. It's an old dude with a blog. Like, we don't already have enough of those. All right, so thanks for tuning in. We want to ditch the ads and be independent editorially, but we can only do that with your support. If you would like to donate to make this podcast and all the shows on the Lazy Geeks Network self-sustaining, you can do so by going to lazygeeks.com and click on the donate button. Now, if you can't help us out monetarily, you can share the show with your buddies and rate the show on iTunes. This will give us bigger exposure. All of this helps, trust me. And you can just check out all the other podcasts that are available on the Lazy Geeks ne Network, like I mentioned before. The Truly Pointless Podcast, The Fine Line, and the, the Star Trek Podcast, The Away Team, all are available wherever you got this show. And if you want to be a part of the show, hit us up with comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. Catch us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under at the Lazy Geeks, or email us, thegeeks, at thelazygeeks.com So that is it for us this week. So until next time, I'm Stephen Vargas. We're thinking so you don't have to. Thank you.